tell you something you probably already know by now, that Jesus Christ is the central point of all Scripture. That the single greatest reason to open up the Bible and study it is to know Jesus. Not to know facts or Scripture verses by memory, but to know Jesus. That's why we're here. I hope that's why you're here. I assume it is. Jesus said to the Pharisees in John 5.39, You search the Scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. It is these that testify about Me. You guys are missing the whole thing, He was saying. The study's so hard and you're so well read and yet you're so poorly fed because you're not seeing Me. He said in John 10.10, I have come that you may have life and have it abundantly. They're searching for life in the Scriptures. Jesus says, I am the life. That's why I've come. Now, we've been learning this truth together across coming up on seven years. We enter into our eighth year on October the 9th. We begin the eighth year as the Bridge Fellowship together. Kind of cool. And we've been learning this truth together that Jesus Christ is the central point of all Scripture. He's the focal point. And we've talked about this over the years and seen this again and again. And I realized, I was thinking this week, you know, as a Bible teacher, I may get to be at the helm, but Jesus is the captain of this boat. But like any helmsman, there are certain passages that I fear to travel through. And back when we started this whole thing, there were places on the map, the biblical map, that I was not sure how in the world we were going to navigate. Leviticus was one of those. Genesis I was excited about. Exodus, yeah, the, you know, the people rescued, delivered, taken out. But Leviticus? I wasn't sure what to do with that. Many people are content just to poke fun at the book of Leviticus, at the strange regulations that are there. They'll open up the book and they'll make jokes or, or just ignore it altogether because of its curiosities. But the Holy Spirit charted our course through that book, didn't He? And I discovered it to be one of the most precious books in all of Scripture. One of my favorites. I go to Leviticus from time to time just for devotional reading. How weird does that sound? And yet it's wonderful when you begin to see what the book of Leviticus is all about. Why are you talking about Leviticus? We're in the Psalms, aren't we? Yes. Tonight, we open up book three of the Psalms, the Levitical Psalms. We are now in that section of the Psalms that will correspond, as you're going to see even this evening, the section of the Psalms that correspond with the third book of Torah, Leviticus. It's Psalms 73 through 89. So in this section, these songs of worship will correspond in both nature and theme to the book of Leviticus. Just as the book of Leviticus centers around the Lord's precepts for worship in the sanctuary, so these psalms will do the same thing. You could call these sanctuary psalms. And I'm excited about this. I I feel so drawn into these because, again, sanctuary psalms, they speak of something our hearts long for, desire, sanctuary. You know, in medieval times, sanctuary, well, that meant you ran into a church when you were in trouble and they protected you. You know, and the governmental powers were not supposed to, anyway, cross the threshold of the church or the cathedral to go in and take you. If you you cry sanctuary, you had protection. Well, our sanctuary is much deeper than that. 
There are two primary components of the book of Leviticus that emerge in this section of the Psalms, and that is the holiness of the sanctuary and the sacrifices of the sanctuary. The holiness and the sacrifices. You see, without the sacrifices, the sanctuary would not be holy and therefore could not even contain the Spirit of the Lord. Not that it ever contained His Spirit, but God's Spirit would not rest there if the place was not holy. And so, for the sanctuary to be holy, there had to be sacrifices. And Leviticus opens up five chapters, shows us five sacrifices, five cameos of the Christ. If you haven't studied it, oh, it's, it's amazing, because each and every sacrifice that God prescribed for Israel and the way to go about those sacrifices portray and picture Jesus in stunning ways. Now in the Levitical Psalms, the first 11 here, Psalms 73 through 83, these are all ascribed to a Levite, a man by the name of Asaph. Asaph, that man of God, who you may recall was assigned by David, along with a couple other guys, he was assigned as the primary, the chief worship leader among the Levites there in the sanctuary. You read about Asaph in 1 Chronicles 15 and 16 and 25. And in 2 Chronicles... We have support for the idea that Asaph, like David, was not only a psalmist, but he was a prophet. A prophet psalmist. 2 Chronicles 29, verse 30. And this is important to note. King Hezekiah and the officials ordered the Levites to sing praises to the Lord with the words of David and Asaph the seer. Asaph the seer, the prophet. And so they sang praises with joy and bowed down and worshipped. The sanctuary psalms, many of them, over ten of them, ten, eleven, possibly twelve, were written by Asaph, who was both psalmist and prophet. And so we begin tonight. Psalm 73, verse 1. Surely God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me... (laughs) Do you feel that way sometimes? Surely God is good to everyone else who's pure in heart. But but as for me, (laughs) I'm in a different place. He says, My feet came close to stumbling. My steps had almost slipped. For I was envious of the arrogant. As I saw the prosperity of the wicked. For there are no pains in their death and their body is fat. In other words, they're well fed, taken care of. They're not in trouble as other men, nor are they plagued like mankind. Therefore, pride is their necklace. The garment of violence covers them. Their eye bulges from fatness. The imaginations of their heart run riot. They mock and wickedly speak of oppression. They speak from on high. (laughs) Sounds governmental to me. They have set their mouth against the heavens, and their tongue parades through the earth. Therefore, His people, that is God's people, return to this place. And waters of abundance are drunk by them. They say, how does God know? And is there knowledge with the Most High? Behold, these are the wicked. And always at ease, they have increased in wrath. Surely in vain I have kept my heart pure and washed my hands in innocence, for I have been stricken all day long and chastened every morning. Who is this, Job? (laughs) Asaph sounds a little like Job. I'm confused, Lord, he's saying. 
I'm confused. I know you're good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. I thought that was me, but it's not working out so well for me right now. I look around, I see a world that's messed up, and it's just flat out confusing. He goes on, he says, If I had said, I will speak thus, behold, I would have betrayed the generation of your children. In other words, I can't be that way. I can't be wicked. I can't be like the unrighteous. But I'm confused that things seem to go so well for them. And he says in verse 16, oh, I love this. When I pondered to understand this, it was troublesome or painful in my sight. I thought about this. I worked it over in my mind. And I was just upset by it until... And here's the key verse of the psalm. Until I came into the sanctuary of God. Boy, out there it's confusing. And out there I struggle. And out there it just doesn't always make sense. Until I come into the sanctuary of God. And then I perceived their end. The sanctuary. The Hebrew word there is mikadosh. From the word kadosh, holy, or holy place. And mikadosh means literally a sacred, consecrated, holy place. The sanctuary. It's the word used, Exodus 25, verse 8. Let them construct a sanctuary for me, a mikadosh, that I may dwell among them. That sanctuary, it's a place consecrated for God's divine presence. Asaph, again, is saying here, I was confused about the way of the world and wickedness until I came into the sanctuary, the place that is consecrated. Verse 18. Surely you set them in slippery places. You cast them down to destruction. How they are destroyed in a moment. They are utterly swept away by sudden terror. See, in the presence of God, the reality of judgment becomes clear. You begin to see and realize, oh, I would really much rather be here than out there. He says in verse 20, Like a dream when one awakes, O Lord, when aroused, you will despise their form or their image or their images. When my heart was embittered and I was pierced within, then I was senseless and ignorant. I was like a beast before you. Nevertheless, I am continually with you. You have taken hold of my right hand. With your counsel, you will guide me and afterward receive me to glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? And besides you, I desire nothing on earth. See, that was a psalm that we just sang. This psalm. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. For behold, those who are far from you will perish. You have destroyed all those who are unfaithful to you. But as for me, And I have this underlined, in fact, and I heard this on Monday, a pastor said this as he was teaching, and I think this is great. Why don't you take a pen or a pencil and lean over and underline the person's Bible next to you, this verse. Okay, (laughs) Verse 28, as for me, the nearness of God is my good. Why leave your home on a fast-darkening Wednesday night to sit on not-so-comfortable chairs in a barn? Mm -hmm. Because the nearness of God is my good. 
The nearness of God. I want to be where you are, Lord. I want to be as close as possible. And if there's worship going up, my sense is you'll be there. And if the word is proclaimed, my, my heart tells me you'll be there. The nearness of God is my good. I have made the Lord God my refuge that I may tell of all your works. Have you found that to be the case? The nearness of God is your good? He is where I want to be. I want to be wherever He is. Now I apologize, Spencer, but I'm going to let you ponder this and think about it until Sunday. We're going to come back to this psalm and we're going to verse by verse work this out together with the whole fellowship on Sunday morning. But I want to open this up because Psalm 73 begins with the sanctuary. You need to note this. With the Levitical Psalms, book 3 of the Psalms, we are headed into the sanctuary. For the next several weeks, we are going to spend our time, oh, I know we always do, but the focus of the teaching, the focus of the Word, is to go into, to take us, draw us into the sanctuary where the nearness of God is our good. This will be the focus. Now, Psalm 73 speaks of the comfort of the sanctuary. Where there's confusion out there, man, there's comfort in here, in the sanctuary of God, wherever the Spirit of God resides, there is comfort and peace there. Psalm 74, however, also addresses, speaks of the sanctuary, but not of comfort. It speaks of calamity. A sudden calamity which fell on the sanctuary in 586 B.C. Now understand, Psalm 74, it says this in the heading, and it's in the Hebrew, a masculine of Asaph. A masculine, a teaching psalm, an instructive psalm of Asaph. And he writes the following. Oh God, why have you rejected us forever? Why does your anger smoke against the sheep of your pasture? Remember your congregation, which you have purchased of old, which you have redeemed to be the tribe of your inheritance, and this Mount Zion where you have dwelt. Turn your footsteps toward the perpetual ruins. The enemy has damaged everything within the sanctuary. The disaster described here and detailed in Psalm 74 is so imprinted on the Jewish mind that it's still annually observed to this very day. It's memorialized on a day of fasting and sorrow known as Tisha B'Av, the ninth of Av. Normally around the August time frame, Tisha B'Av. Here's where it starts. Jeremiah 52 verse 12 tells us, Now on the tenth day of the fifth month, which was the nineteenth year of King Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, Nebuzaradan, the captain of the bodyguard, who was in the service of the king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem. And he burned the house of the Lord, the king's house, and all the houses of Jerusalem, even every large house, he burned with fire. Tisha B'Av? The ninth of Av? Well, Jeremiah proclaimed that it happened on the 10th of Av. Why then do they celebrate, or not celebrate, but memorialize, why do they commemorate the ninth of Av? Well, that's interesting. It's because according to the Talmud, quote, the beginning of any misfortune is of greater moment. The Jewish mind would say, where the suffering begins, that's where we remember. You see, what happened on the 9th of Av, the fires were set in the temple. The fires began to burn on the 9th. The temple burned into the 10th and finally fell. So on the 9th, according to the Jewish mindset, the 9th is the greater moment. Because the 9th is when the catastrophe began. Yes, the temple fell on the 10th. But on the 9th was where it began. 
the downfall. And so Tishvah is remembered. The fire set there on the night. Interesting, when Rome conquered Jerusalem there in 70 AD, once again the fires were set, amazingly, on the 9th of Av, and the temple fell again on the 10th. Now, uh, if you happen to be a sharp Bible student, you may have a question at this point. How could Asaph have written this psalm? Because, you see, the temple fell in 586 B.C. Asaph was assigned by David as a Levitical worship leader around 1000 B.C. Nearly 400 years earlier. How in the world could Asaph write this psalm? He wasn't even there. It wouldn't happen for some 400 years because Asaph, gang, was a psalmist and a prophet. And so, and you got to stick with me tonight because we're going to bounce back and forth between this psalm and the next trying to find our place there in, in history, where, where it's being written and what's happening and when. But this is prophetic game. I have no problem believing this fact. I like what uh, Spurgeon said, because there have been a lot of, a lot of commentarians who have, who have stated, you know, it couldn't be Asaph who wrote this, because it happened 400 years later. And it denies the whole spirit of prophecy, uh, which the Bible is all about, it's foolish for us to not realize, hey, God is the author of the Bible, and God was there with Asaph, and God was there in 586 B.C., and the Spirit told Asaph, I want you to write this. Why? Because the Spirit would be there and saw it in 586 as well. So Asaph is writing as a prophet, uh, and it was Spurgeon who said, we see no difficulty in supposing it is a prophetic, a prophetic psalm. And so that's how we will read it and understand it as prophecy. Not that Asaph saw it happen, but that his spirit knew it would happen by the Spirit of God, and he wrote this down. Sounds like God, doesn't it? To give warning 400 years in advance, to let the people know this is where it's headed. The temple in ruins, the sanctuary burned, the anger of the Lord like smoke. This is coming. It doesn't have to, but... Well, it is. The Lord gives this warning. And Asaph, inspired by the Spirit, prophesies of the event. Verse 4, he writes, Your adversaries have roared into the midst of your meeting place. They have set up their own standards for signs. Now suddenly, Asaph leaps beyond 586 B.C. to 175 B.C. What? How do you know that? Well, not only... Was the temple burned and destroyed, damaged everything in the sanctuary? Verse 3, that would be Babylon. But in verse 4, they have set up their own standards for signs. That is an allusion to what Daniel called the abomination of desolation. The first time something like this, the example of it was seen, was 175 B.C. When a crazy man by the name of Antiochus Epiphanes came along. He was of the Seleucid dynasty. And Antiochus came in and conquered Jerusalem. He entered the temple. He offered up a pig on the altar to, to desecrate the whole thing. And then he spattered pig soup all over the inside of the most holy place of the rebuilt of the second temple. And at this time, Antiochus actually set up in the Holy of Holies, he set up an idol to the god Jupiter. We know that historically happened. Now Daniel wrote about that around 500, wrote about that ahead of time, and then it happened again in 175, that first abomination of desolation. But Jesus comes along, 
And he teaches that another one would happen, a far more significant abomination of desolation. And the key, get this, the key to the abomination of desolation is the setting up of an image, as the psalmist writes, setting up their own standard for a sign. And so the setting up of that image to the, to the god Jupiter in 175 B.C. And Jesus says, therefore, Matthew 24, 15, when you see the abomination of desolation, that would be the setting up of an image in the holy place, which was spoken of through Daniel the prophet, standing in the holy place, let the reader understand. Then those who are in Judea must flee to the mountains. Jesus says what was spoken of by Daniel the prophet, when you see it happen, you need to flee. So Jesus takes a past tense and he makes it future tense. Which tells us two things. Number one, that Jesus was not speaking of the abomination of desolation that Antiochus Epiphanes set up, that idol of Jupiter. It's not what Jesus was talking about. He was saying no one is coming that will be set up. Oh, right, AD 70. No. This is one of the things that undermines the, the uh, belief in preterism. Because preterism says all that Jesus talked about in the abomination of desolation had happened in A.D. 70. It didn't. Because Titus, when he came in, the Roman general, did not set up an idol in the holy place of the temple when it burned. In fact, Titus instructed his men, don't burn down the temple. But in a drunken party, apparently one of them threw a torch into the temple, it caught fire and began to burn. And as it burned, the gold that overlaid all of the temple there began to melt. Titus' men went nuts. And not one stone was left upon another as they tore it apart trying to pull out whatever gold they could get. But an idol was never set up in AD 70. Jesus was absolutely clear. When you see the abomination of desolation which was spoken of through Daniel the prophet standing in the holy place and he even adds let the reader understand. Which reader? I believe the readers who will be alive at that time. I think Jesus is talking there and he's talking directly to them. Understand when an idol is set up in the holy place the most holy place of the temple then you know that's what I'm talking about and it's time to get out of Jerusalem. Well then, Pastor, when will that happen? I believe right at the midpoint of the tribulation. John talks about it in Revelation. Paul talks about it in 2 Thessalonians. The setting up where Antichrist declares himself to be God. Sets up his own image there in that holy place. I won't get all into that. I could, but I won't. So this psalm reaches further down the line to the next time the adversaries roar into the meeting place and set up their own standard for a sign. And that's what Satan does, by the way. He always comes in and sets up his own standard. He's always setting up a counterfeit to the real thing. You know, when when Rome did storm in, or when Antiochus did, and when they tore apart the veil and, and looked behind, how strange. How strange to not find anything there. Now, now when Babylon stormed in, they would have, well, they probably wouldn't have even have seen the Ark of the Covenant at that point because there's, there's good evidence that Solomon took care of that or that the, the priest did hiding the Ark of the Covenant. Oh man. Boy, there's so many different rabbit trails I could go down tonight. <laughs> Stay on track, Rick. But when they tore that apart and went in there to look and there's nothing really there and even if the ark had been there which it wasn't but if it had been there a box? That's what's on the inside of this temple? (laughs) Completely missing that what gave the people the sense of the presence of God was the presence of God. 
not an idol. Satan says, let's put an idol in there. Something to look at. God says, you don't need anything to look at. What you need is my spirit. Satan will always try to counterfeit things. Always try to make something like what we worship. Like God. But it's, it's never the real thing. Never original. He sets up his own standards for signs. Verse 5. It seems as if one had lifted up his axe in a forest of trees. So this is a completely decimated temple. And now all its carved work they smash with hatchet and with hammers. They have burned your sanctuary to the ground. They have defiled the dwelling place of your name. Amazing. That never happened in Asaph's lifetime. It only happened there 400 years later in 586. But Asaph saw it. Prophetically. And that's the wonder of prophecy. Prophecy is almost, it's like reading history before it happens. It's absolutely as specific as history itself, just prior to the actual date of the occurrence. Verse 8, they said in their heart, let us completely subdue them. They have burned all the meeting places of God in the land. So Babylon, and they did this, not only burned the temple, but burned all the synagogues as well. All the meeting places. Suddenly here the sanctuary is smoldering. The place of refuge is in ruins. Then Asaph in the spirit must be wondering, Lord, don't you care? Don't you care what your enemies will do to your holy place, to the sanctuary? But did you catch what he said in verse 1? Oh God, why have you rejected us forever? Why does your anger smoke against the sheep of your pasture? My friends, the attack may be of the enemy, but it is unleashed by the anger of God. You see, even Satan doesn't function without at least the permission of the Father. I want you to note a few things in this psalm. The first one is that the psalmist expresses God's punishing calamity. Asaph expresses God's punishing calamity. That truly the fall of the temple in 586 and in AD 70, and when it happens again... This is the work of God. This is the doing of God Himself. Jeremiah 25.9 Jeremiah wrote by, by the Spirit of God, God saying, I will send to Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, my servant, and will bring them against this land and against its inhabitants and against all these nations round about, and I will utterly destroy them and make them a horror and a hissing and an everlasting desolation. Who will do that? God does that. By who? By his servant, Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar was functioning in the service of God when he destroyed the temple. It was punishment. For the people had gone after idolatry and had gone after carved images so much that God said, fine. You Bible students know. God said, you want idolatry? I'm going to send you to the heart of idolatry, downtown idolatry in Babylon. And you can live there and you can have idolatry till it's coming out of your ears. And maybe then you'll understand why it's so sickening. And historically we know when the Jewish people came back to the land, idol worship was never again an issue after they returned from Babylon. That was never their problem again. Oh, they had others, but that wasn't it. So the psalmist recognizes that though the attack was performed by the enemy, it was ordained by God, and it stirs this emotional question, Why have you rejected us forever? Does he? Does God reject his people forever? No, he doesn't. 
Romans 11.1, 1, Paul wrote, God has not rejected His people, has He? May it never be. Verse 5 of that same chapter. There has also come to be at the present time a remnant according to God's gracious choice. There are leftovers. There's a handful of people who still believe in the Lord, Paul wrote. A handful of those in Israel. Verse 15 of Romans 11, he said, If their rejection is reconciliation for the world, what will their acceptance be but life from the dead? And that should be so encouraging for you and me. For if Israel is not fully rejected and cast off, neither are you. And if you feel cast off, if you feel rejected, if you feel like you don't have a sanctuary to run to, repent. Just turn around. Turn to the Lord. He has not rejected you. The Bible is clear on this. God has done everything possible to reconcile you and to reconcile me. 2 Corinthians 5.17 Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creature. The old things passed away. Behold, new things have come. And all these things are from God who reconciled us to Himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. He says, you've been reconciled, now go do the same thing. Be reconcilers. Verse 9. Asaph writes, we do not see our signs. There is no longer any prophet nor is there any among us who knows how long. He writes of a day when all Israel would fear that God has gone silent. There's no prophet. There's no voice. We're not hearing a thing. And many secular Jews in Israel today believe this very thing, tragically, that God has either gone silent or that God is dead. He's not talking to us anymore. We have no prophets. The Lord has gone silent. Even Jeremiah proclaimed a deafening silence after the temple went down. The book of Lamentations, we know that Jeremiah was sitting there on the Mount of Olives writing as the temple burned. And he wrote these words, Lamentations chapter 2, verse 9, Her gates have sunk into the ground. He has destroyed and broken her bars. Her king and her princes are among the nations. The law is no more. Also her prophets find no vision from the Lord. Jeremiah says, we're not hearing a thing. Has God rejected forever? Verse 10, How long, O God, will the adversary revile and the enemy spurn your name forever? Why do you withdraw your hand, even your right hand, from within your bosom destroy them? Then untie your hand, Lord, and attack. Bring it on, Father. Now listen, this question, does the Lord reject forever? From the perspective of the beginning of hardship... It always seems like the trouble is going to last forever. When you're on the front end of problems, when the house goes into foreclosure, or when the doctor calls and yes, it's cancer, or when things go bad, it always seems from the very beginning like like it's going to last forever. It's not until it's over that you look back and realize how short the time really was. Now, this wasn't a tragic situation, but in the process of bringing our three kids home from adoption, or from Ghana by adoption, when it first started out, it felt like forever. Every time we turned around, it felt like there was just one more thing that was delaying the process. Michael, you know. In fact, Michael, i got to tell you the story. Can I talk about you for a minute? 
just nod and okay, good. Have I have I shared with you all? Michael was there at Beacon House Orphanage the day we finally picked up Anna Marie, Naomi, and David. It had only been nine months of process. At the beginning of the nine months, it felt like forever. At the end of it, it was like, oh man, that was over like that. Michael was there that day. And I'll never forget pulling out in the car from Beacon House with Anna Marie, Naomi, and David and looking out the window and seeing Michael standing there. And what he didn't know, but what I knew was that John and Lisa had already decided to adopt him and he would be coming home and he was going to live down the street but I couldn't tell him. I couldn't let him know. But the look on his face, I'm like, I told Cheryl, I wish we could go back and just kidnap him. I wish we could steal him and bring him home and then just give him to John and Lisa and say, don't worry, we'll cover it somehow. You know, we'll figure it out. And I don't know how Michael felt but I can guess that it must have seemed like a long wait. But not so long when you get to the other side of it. And so with Asaph, he's saying, boy, it seems like the trouble's going to last forever. But you know what? Our emotions are never in touch with real time. That's why you shouldn't trust your emotions, because they don't think in terms of real time. Your feelings, your emotions, they, they well up immediately. Oh, we need an answer now. Oh, things are bad right now. And that's not the truth. The emotions stir up. Fear, pain, doubt, terror, sorrow... These things can seem eternal, but they're just temporary. They won't go on forever. I love Paul's perspective. He says in 2 Corinthians 4.17, For momentary light affliction is producing for us an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison. And the worst you have to experience in this life, when we look back at this from eternity, it'll be like that. A blip. I, I think I recall that being a different nah I did it so long ago <laughs> seems like nothing now Paul says we look not at the things which are seen but at the things which are not seen for the things which are seen are temporary but the things which are not seen are eternal I see the books and they look bad temporary I see the results of the medical test temporary I see the angry look in their eyes temporary The things that are unseen. That's what we're living for, and that's eternal. Well, the psalmist expresses God's punishing calamity, but it is not forever. Secondly, now, we see the the psalmist, Asaph, he evokes God's previous conquest and creation. I know that's a long line, but listen to it again. He evokes God's previous conquest and creation. Watch this in verse 12. Yet, it's always a great word when someone's speaking negatively and then they say, yet... Good, we're turning a corner here. Yet God is my king from of old, who works deeds of deliverance in the midst of the earth. You and all these yous, you can look down, 13, 14, 15, all these yous are literally you yourself. So he's really declaring something here. You yourself divided the sea by your strength. You yourself broke the heads of the sea monsters in the waters. You yourself crushed the heads of Leviathan. You yourself gave him as food for the creatures of the wilderness. You yourself broke open springs and torrents. You yourself dried up ever-flowing streams. Yours is the day, and yours is also the night. Now what's he doing here? He's, he's remembering, he's declaring God's previous conquests. The sea divided there in, in verse 13. Well, that's the Red Sea. You divided the sea. 
by your strength. You broke the heads of the sea monsters in the waters and you crushed the heads of Leviathan. What in the world is that? Well, oddly enough, if you look back historically, the, the chariots of Pharaoh had carved images of crocodiles and dragon-like creatures. So you yourself broke the heads of the sea monsters and broke the heads of Leviathan in the waters. He's talking about the chariots going down. So still, talking about the Red Sea and that glorious and wonderful and amazing event that Jewish people today still look back to and say, yeah, those were times of miracles. I love this line. You gave him as food for the creatures of the wilderness. Creatures can also be translated people. The people of the wilderness were Israel. You gave him as food for the creatures of the... So as the army of Egypt went down, went underwater, the psalmist declares, yeah, they were lunch meat, man. (laughs) Food for the people of the wilderness, that is, the sojourning Israelites. You broke open springs and torrents? Well, that's water from the rock. You dried up the ever-flowing streams, the Jordan River, as they crossed over on dry land because God stopped the river from flowing. All these miracles. Yours is the day, a cloud by day. And yours is also the night, the fire by night. And so he is, he is here just remembering and, and regurgitating some great truth of the conquest of God. And then he slides into the creation of God. No doubt he's thinking about the, the cloud by day and the fire by night. And then he realizes, well, wait a minute, even more than that, you prepared the light for, and the sun. You gave us day. Now he goes from Exodus all the way back to Genesis to the very beginning. You prepared the light and the sun. You established the boundaries of the earth. You have made summer and winter. He covers all these things. He talks about God's previous conquest. He magnifies God's previous creation. What is Asaph doing here? He's reviewing the greatness of God from the past. Stories, no doubt, that he had heard in the sanctuary. Stories taught there in the temple courts of the glories and the greatness of God. Why? Why is he looking back? The reason, the only reason, at least that I've found that's positive, the only reason for looking back is to give you strength for faith to look ahead. If you're looking back to deal with pain and sorrow and tragedy and difficulty, well, that's not a good reason. You don't want to wallow back there. But if you're looking back to see how God got you out of those things, that's different. If you're looking back to proclaim the goodness of God, His nearness to you throughout different stages in your life, and you look back and you see those, you go, yeah, He was with me then. That's going to give you faith for the future. In Psalm 77, he'll do it again. He says, I shall remember the deeds of the Lord. Surely I will remember your wonders of old. I will meditate on all your work and muse on your deeds. So even now, as he prophesies the coming destruction of the temple, Asaph pauses and says, Yet, yet, think back. Think back, Israel. Think back, my own heart, to the greatness of God in creation and the glory of God in the conquest of the promised land. It's marvelous. Asaph expresses God's punishing calamity. He evokes God's past conquest and creation. Number three, now he entreats God's present character. He entreats God's present character and he does it in four ways. Quickly, verse 18, he says, Remember this, O Lord, that the enemy has reviled and a foolish people has spurned your name. Your name. Asaph appeals to God's calling his name. The Bible students remember this. The name and the character, especially to the Hebrew mindset, go hand in hand. 
The name speaks of the character of the person. And so he says, Lord, the enemy, they're spurning your name. I know you called down Babylon to attack the city. I know, Lord, that you ordained the fall of the temple. But here's this enemy, and now they're making fun of you, Lord. They're casting dispersion on your name. Oh, for your namesake, Lord. For your namesake, save your people. Which is exactly the thing to which we appeal. You know, it really isn't, God, save me because I'm worth saving. It's save me for your namesake, Lord. Save me because you are a God of salvation. It is in your character to save. Therefore, save me, Lord. Deliver me because you are a deliverer. Jesus, save me because Yeshua, Jesus, means God saves. It's appealing to the name. Isaiah 48.11, the Lord says, For my own sake, for my own sake, I will act. For how can my name be profaned? And my glory I will not give to another. Listen, my name can be profaned all day long. I do lots of stuff. Stupid enough to have my name held up as the idiot of the month, you know? Not God, whose name is perfect. Appealing to the name, verse 19. He continues to entreat the character of God. Verse 19, he says, Do not deliver the soul of your turtle dove to the wild beast. Do not forget the life of your afflicted forever. What's this? He's appealing to God's company. That is, to God's people. The turtle dove in this verse represents weakness and defenselessness. He draws a great picture. Imagine taking a turtle dove out and just tossing it into a a pit filled with wild beasts. That's what he's saying. This little bird has no chance. Remember, you're a defenseless little one. Thrown into the jaws of a wild beast. There's future prophecy, I think, in this as well. Israel, the defenseless people, threatened by a beast as will happen in the tribulation. But personalize this game. We are a weak and defenseless people. Without the Spirit of God, the dove, the turtle dove, the Holy Spirit, come upon us and being present within us. So consider your calling, Lord. Consider your company. Verse 20. Consider the covenant. Number three, He appeals to the covenant. For the dark places of the land are full of the habitations of violence. This covenant he's appealing to is a specific one. I don't believe it's the Abrahamic covenant. I don't believe it's the Mosaic covenant. I believe specifically he's talking about the land covenant, which God gives to Abraham in Genesis 15. God gives more than one. Genesis 12 is the Abrahamic covenant. I will bless you and by you all nations of the world will be blessed. That's a broad-ranging one. Genesis 15 is where God comes to Abraham and Abraham falls into that deep sleep. Remember, Abraham has prepared a covenant sacrifice. He's divided the animals in half and there's a pathway of blood. And it's a very, very serious covenant, but Abraham falls asleep. And then God comes smoking through the path. And as he goes through, he makes it clear to Abraham, this is my covenant to you. It is mine to keep. It is unconditional. I will keep it. What was that covenant? The land. The land of Israel, Abraham. I'm giving this to you, specifically. Well, why do you think it's that covenant? Because the psalmist says, Consider the covenant, for the dark places of the land are full of the inhabitations of violence. It's writing of a time when the land would start to fall and, and the people would look around and say, wait, 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 God made a covenant. He said that this land would be our land and indeed it will. So he's appealing to God's covenant. Verse 21. 
Let the oppressed return dishonored. Let the afflicted and the needy praise your name. Number four, he appeals to God's compassion for the oppressed. In entreating the name of God, the calling of God, he he appeals to his compassion. Asaph knows something about the Lord. I think you know it too. Perhaps you don't. You need to be reminded. God has a soft spot for the underdog. So if you're ever feeling like the underdog, God's going, I got you. I have you in my sights. I care greatly for those who can't even take care of themselves. God helps those who help themselves. No, God helps the helpless. He loves the underdog. We see it in Jesus. He was walking with the apostles and in Matthew 9.36, sees a massive number of people. It says, seeing the people, he felt compassion for them because they were distressed and dispirited like sheep without a shepherd. Now, i got to be honest. When I see a mob of people, the last thing I feel is compassion. Usually when I see a vast throng of people, I think, boy, we're all so stupid. We're all just a bunch of idiots. Look at what these look at what they're doing. They're so have you ever been to a football game and just looked around at the things people have on their heads? <laughs> a couple of years ago, Sharon and I went down to Seahawks game. And they're at Quest and it was awesome. So cool to be in there. Very exciting. And I started looking around and we were playing Green Bay. They had cheese on their heads. Big blocks of cheese hats. And I'm looking at this mob going, what a bunch of idiots. They're just stupid. And Jesus, see when Jesus looks out at the whole mob, He says, oh, they're hurting. He has compassion for them. In fact, it goes on in that same passage, Matthew chapter 9, verse 37, that He said to His disciples, The harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Therefore, beseech the Lord of the harvest to send out workers into His harvest, whereas I might see a mob as a bunch of idiots. Jesus sees the mob of people as a wonderful harvest ready to be gathered. You know, one of the reasons I love the fall so much is I know Thanksgiving is coming. It's one of the best days of the year. And and that picture in my mind, even as I think about Thanksgiving, of the turkey sizzling on the table and the stuffing and all the dishes, you know, set out, and I know that we're going to be eating like for 48 hours, and I I love it. (laughs) And it's that sense of, of fruitfulness and of the harvest coming in, and that's how Jesus compassionately sees everybody. They're my harvest. Pray that, that the Lord will send out workers. That's, that's us. And that should be our continual prayer. That God will send out from among us and ourselves workers for the harvest because Jesus wants the table to be full. Workers for the harvest. God's compassion. And finally, finally the psalmist appeals to God's cause. Verse 22, Arise, O God, and plead your own cause. Remember how the foolish man reproaches you all day long. Your cause, O Lord. Your plans, your purposes. Asaph here is doing a wonderful thing. He is praying the will of God. He's not praying the will of Asaph. He is now praying the will of God. You know, whatever happens here, Lord, it's your cause that I'm calling out for. Just like Jesus prayed, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Didn't Jesus know the kingdom was going to come? Didn't he realize he's the king? 
Doesn't he know that's part of the whole program, that he'll be coming back and he'll reign a thousand years, that this whole deal is going to happen? Well, absolutely he knows that. So why does he waste time praying it? Why do any of us pray anything that we know is already going to happen? Because we're praying the will of the Father. We are aligning ourselves with His cause. And that's what Asaph is doing right here. Alignment with the will of the Father. Verse 23, Do not forget the voice of your adversaries, the uproar of those who rise against you, which ascends continually. And the psalm ends. On that note, distressed and discouraged and dreary and dark, but it ain't over yet. Psalm 75 comes next. And Psalm 75, gang, is the answer to Psalm 74. It's the third of three psalms, all designated Al-Tashketh. Al-Tashketh, a psalm of Asaph, a song. Al-Tashketh, you may recall, means do not destroy. O Lord, the sanctuary may be destroyed, but do not destroy this psalm. And this is a good one. Another prophetic psalm of Asaph, looking to a time roughly 250 years after his own time, but 136 years before the temple falling, as detailed in Psalm 74. So see, we're jumping around. Asaph's writing in 1,000. Psalm 74, he writes about 586 B.C. Now Psalm 75, though it's the next psalm, and it answers Psalm 74, he's writing about something that happened 250 or so years after his time but earlier, before, 136 years before the fall of the temple. Are you with me? Kind of? I know it happened somewhere there, you know, after Asaph. Okay, good enough. Sennacherib and Rabshakeh and the massive, brutal Assyrian army. Rabshakeh and Ah, that was the whole thing. They came in there and they were going to just destroy Israel. And they got past all the outposts. Jerusalem there was surrounded and they're taunting the people inside the walls from the outside and they're terrorizing with threatening letters. Remember what Hezekiah did? He took the letter of Rabshakeh and he rolled it out in the sanctuary. He goes to the sanctuary, opens it up before the Lord and says, Lord, look at at what they're doing. Look at what they're saying. Lord, we're appealing to you here in the sanctuary. And you remember what happened? They woke up dead. The entire army, 180,000 Assyrians, woke up dead. That's what the Bible says. Actually, it's probably Israel that woke up and found them all dead. They look out there and there's an encampment of dead bodies strewn among the hills surrounding Jerusalem. God had protected His people. God brought deliverance when deliverance was not even possible, not to the human mind. Watch this, Psalm 75, verse 1. Oh, we give thanks to You, O God. We give thanks, for Your name is near. Men declare Your wondrous works, O Lord, as long as You're near. We can give thanks. Remember, the nearness of God is my good. And the the temple, the sanctuary, was always a reminder to the Jewish people. All they had was but to look at it and remember, God is near. He's near. As they traveled through the wilderness those those 40 years, all they had to do was look over to where the tabernacle was. They're planted right in the middle of the encampment. There's the tabernacle. God is near. We're going to be okay. Now the Lord speaks in verse 2. This is God speaking. 
When I select an appointed time, it is I who judge with equity. Or literally, at the right time, I judge with equity. The earth and all who dwell in it melt. And that word melt also can be translated totter. The earth totters, as in an earthquake. It is I who have firmly set its pillars. I said to the boastful, do not boast, and to the wicked, do not lift up the horn. Do not lift up your horn on high. Do not speak with insolent pride. What's this horn he's talking about? I'll tell you in just a minute. God says, my timing is perfect. And it doesn't matter if the entire ends of the earth melt or totter and quake. I'm going to judge at the right time. You can have confidence in that. I will take care of it when the time is right. In verse 6, he says, For not from the east, nor from the west, nor from the desert, that would be in the south, comes exaltation. Why isn't the north mentioned? I think it's kind of a slight to Assyria, which was coming from the north. There is no exaltation in the north. It's not coming from the east or the west or the south either. Assyria, the mighty nation from the north, and as far as God is concerned, they're not even worth mentioning here. He goes on in verse 7. But God is the judge. He puts down one and exalts another. He's the judge. He put down the Assyrians there in 722 B.C. The Assyrians threatened Judah. God put them down. And yet in 586, He exalted Babylon and allowed the destruction at that time. Babylon captured Judah. But here's the thing to know. And a practical issue for us. Promotion and demotion come from the Lord. Oh, how much peace would have been in my life over the years if I had realized that. Promotion and demotion comes not from man, it comes from the Lord. He's the one who exalts and He's the one who puts down. And this is wonderful personally because we live in an ambitious world filled with resumes and references. And guess what? You don't have to promote yourself. You don't have to do it. I thought I did. I was wrong. Psalm 113 verse 7, He raises the poor from the dust and lifts the needy from the ash heap to make them sit with princes, with the princes of His people. You don't need right contacts. You need right connection. And that is connection to the Lord because He is the promoter. And He'll put you where He wants you to be. Really? Because I've been working hard on my resume, man. (laughs) You're saying God will do this? Jesus said, I am the vine, John 15, and you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him, he bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. I would love to go for a job interview, hand him a resume, and all it says at the top is just Jesus. What's this? Oh, I, I'm, I'm, I belong to Jesus. Just wanted to start there. <laughs> it might work if you're you know, applying for a church job. Jesus said in John 15, 16, You did not choose me, but I chose you. I appointed you that you would go and bear fruit, and that your fruit would remain. And I discovered over the years that even in church, my resume never mattered much. It really didn't. I worked hard in college and even harder in grad school and I thought, this will get me the job and nobody noticed. Every church I have ever served in, every single one, God has worked out. 
From the very first, looking back, in one case, the answering machine was flashing with a message from a guy that I didn't know and he didn't know me, and that became my first ministry. And then from there, I got a call from a place called Virginia. I didn't even know where that was. I knew it was over there. You know? Wait a minute, where are we? Over there. Right? Yeah. To the east! And I was called to be a youth pastor out there. They didn't know me, I didn't know them. It just, it was God's will. It worked. The only church that I got turned down from was the one church that I pursued. No, I'm sorry, we got other... You have my resume, you got my... Yeah, but... Okay, six months later, I got a call from a sister church of the one I pursued, and they said, hey, we'd like to have you here. I'm like, oh. Okay, I guess that's the one I was supposed to go to. And on and on to the Bridge Christian Fellowship. And no one here has ever even seen my resume. It's probably a good thing. Talk about a call. God said, would you be willing to plant a church here? Yes, Lord. Yes. Because the Lord is the one who sets up and puts down. And He determines. And so I would submit to you that whether your life is easy or hard right now, you're probably right where He wants you to be. Unless you're fleeing from Him and trying to do it your way, then you may be where you want to be and it's not the best place to be. So bring it back to the Father and say, Father, where do you want me to be? And if you're still here tomorrow, well, you're supposed to be here. Verse 8. Oh, verse 8. Watch this. For a cup is in the hand of the Lord, and the wine foams. It is well mixed, and He pours out of this. Surely all the wicked of the earth must drain and drink down its dregs. Watch this. Back in Psalm 74, the psalmist wrote, Remember, remember, O Lord, he did it six times there in verse 2. Remember your congregation. And then down in verse 18 of Psalm 74, remember this, O Lord, that the enemy has reviled. He does it in verse 19. Do not forget the life of your afflicted. He does it in verse 20. Consider or remember your covenant. He does it in verse 22. Remember how the foolish man reproaches you. And in verse 23, do not forget the voice of your adversaries. Oh, remember, Lord, in all the confusion and the smoke and the despair of the crumbling temple, the falling sanctuary, the people could cry, Oh, remember, Lord. And so the Lord answers that cry with an amazing device of remembrance. A cup. A cup is in the hand of the Lord. A cup of remembrance. Remember, Jesus took the cup. And Jesus said in Matthew 26, 28, This is my blood of the covenant which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. And every Sunday we take a cup. And every Sunday we pause to remember. And we don't just have to do it every Sunday. I would encourage you to do it more often than that. In small groups. And when you're meeting with friends to go out to dinner, pause. Break bread. Share the cup. The cup of remembrance. 1 Corinthians 11.25, Paul said, He took the cup after supper saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. The cup of remembrance. Now understand this. If you read verse 8, you might begin to think at the beginning, oh, hey, great allusion to the cup of communion here. 
It's in the hand of the Lord. The wine foams. It's well mixed. And He pours out of this. Surely all the wicked, oh, all the wicked of the earth must drain and drink down its dregs. It must be something else. It's not. It is the cup of remembrance that's being talked about here. The cup of redemption. How so? In the hands of a follower of Jesus, the cup of remembrance is communion in the sanctuary. We commune with Him. He redeems us by it. When we take the cup, we are reminded of the nearness of God. We're reminded of what it took for us to be able to enter into the Holy of Holies with Him by His Spirit. We commune together and with the Father. But it says the wicked drink it. Yes, they will. Same cup? Same cup. But in the hands of the rebellious, the cup that would be for you redemption is now the cup of wrath. It was wrath for Jesus. It was His blood that poured out on the cross. You think that was an enjoyable time? You think He was thinking about a devotional thought for that Sunday morning communion? Oh, hey, they're piercing my hands. I can talk about this at communion on Sunday. It was wrath for Jesus. It was representative of the greatest moment of wrath in the history of the world, the crucifixion. That cup of remembrance that brings about our communion, our redemption, is also the cup of suffering and sorrow and wrath. And the wicked will drink it to the dregs. Isaiah 51.17 Isaiah said, Rouse yourself, rouse yourself. Arise, O Jerusalem, you who have drunk from the Lord's hand the cup of His anger, the chalice of reeling, you have drained to the dregs. The cup of remembrance is a cup of wrath. It represents that communion in Jesus' blood which He poured out as He took the wrath of God. And listen to this, I'll just read it to you. Revelation 14 and verse 9 says another angel here in the tribulation period, another angel, a third one, followed them, saying with a loud voice, If anyone worships the beast and his image and receives a mark on his forehead or on his hand, he also will drink of the wine of the wrath of God, which is mixed in full strength in the cup of his anger, and he will be tormented with fire and brimstone in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever. They who have no rest day and night, those who worship the beast and his image and who receives the mark of his name. And down further in verse 18, it continues and says, Another angel, the one who has power over fire, came out from the altar. And he called with a loud voice to him who had the sharp sickle, saying, Put in your sharp sickle and gather the clusters from the vine of the earth because her grapes are ripe. And so the angel swung his sickle to the earth and gathered the clusters from the vine of the earth and threw them into the great winepress of the wrath of God. And the winepress was trodden outside the city and blood came up from the winepress up to the horse's bridles for a distance of 200 miles. Listen, when we take the cup of communion... We have made a choice to commune with Jesus because He took the wrath. But if you reject the cup, you will drink it to the dregs. We talked about that on Sunday. It's a cup of damnation. Jesus said, I'll drink it for you so that when you drink it, you do so remembering Me. But if you reject it, you will drink it. 
all the way to the last drop. Jesus says, why not drink My cup now? Commune with Me now. Come into the sanctuary of My Spirit where the cup of remembrance it calls to mind My sacrificial love every time you drink of it. Verse 9, But as for Me, I will declare it forever. I will sing praises to the God of Jacob. Praises to the God of Jacob. Verse 10, And all the horns of the wicked I will cut off. I know most of your versions say He. The word is I there. So it's probably the Lord speaking again here at the end of the psalm. All the horns of the wicked I will cut off, but the horns of the righteous will be lifted up. What are the horns again? They're not little devil horns. Okay? Because both the wicked and the righteous have them. Have you, have you, seen, um, have you seen the painting of Moses, the Michelangelo portrait? It's interesting if, you, if you've seen it. Michelangelo, look it up uh, on, on the internet. Google it when you get home. It's a picture that's supposed to be Moses, but he's got devil horns. Because when Michelangelo painted it, he was reading from a mistranslation in the Latin Vulgate Bible of Exodus 34.29, which reads, It came about when Moses was coming down from Mount Sinai, he did not know that the skin of his face shone because of his speaking with him. The Latin Vulgate translates that the skin of his face had horns because he was speaking with God. The word shone, which they translated horns, is the Hebrew word karen. Karen, you could translate it or write it out, Q-E-R-E-N, karen. And it literally means rays of strength. Now, it's also translated horns because it's used in the, in the case of like a, a steer with horns that is strong. It's a powerful animal and therefore rays of strength. Those horns are representative of its strength. But it literally means rays of strength. Habakkuk 3.4 says his radiance is like the sunlight. He has rays, Corinne, flashing from his hands. Psalm 132.17 There I will cause the horn of David to spring forth. Doesn't mean all of a sudden David's going to be sitting there one day and... Oh, oh man! Ah, it means... It means His glory. Rays of strength will spring forth. For I have prepared, Psalm 132.17, a lamp for mine anointed. So the strength of the wicked, what God is saying here, is the strength of the wicked cut off. The glory, the rays of strength of the righteous will be lifted up. Now quickly, Psalm 76 continues in the flow of Psalm 75. It's still dealing with the sanctuary. Same historical background as Psalm 75, the fall of Assyria as they tried to take out Judah, the rescue of Judah. But there's more going on here. It can divide into two parts. Verses 1-6, through talking about the fame of the Lord. And then verses 7-12, through talking about the fear of the Lord. Watch this. God is known in Judah. His name is great in Israel. His tabernacle is in Salem. His dwelling place also is in Zion. And there He broke the flaming arrows, the shield and the sword and the weapons of war. You are resplendent, more majestic than the mountains of prey. The stout-hearted were plundered. They sank into sleep. Remember? 180,000 of them. Dead. And none of the warriors could use his hands. At your rebuke, O God of Jacob, both rider and horse were cast into a dead sleep. The fame of God as he took out Assyria. And then the fear of God. Verse 7. You, even you, are to be feared. 
And who may stand in your presence when once you are angry? For you caused judgment to be heard from heaven. The earth feared and was still when God arose to judgment to save all the humble of the earth. For the wrath of man shall praise you. With a remnant of wrath you will gird yourself. Make vows to the Lord your God and fulfill them. Let all who are around Him bring gifts to Him who is to be feared. Verse 12, He will cut off the spirit of princes. He is feared by the kings of the earth. Asaph writes this, Of the fame of the Lord, declaring that destruction of Assyria, and the fear of the Lord. But, but gang, this psalm is big. This psalm is bigger than Assyria. Psalm 76 is far bigger than Judah. It ends, note this, it ends with God on the throne in the sanctuary of perfect peace, Salem, while all the kings and the princes of the world, of earth, come bringing gifts before Him. Did I mention this was a prophetic psalm? It is absolutely. And it's prophetic beyond a few hundred years after Asaph. It is prophetic to the point that it has not yet happened. Look at this quickly. God is known in Judah. His name is great in Israel. His tabernacle or sanctuary is in Salem. And say Jerusalem. Note that. Salem. His dwelling place also is in Zion. Four geographical places are listed here. Judah, which is within larger Israel. But within Judah there, or on the border between Judah and Benjamin, there is Salem, Jerusalem. And within Jerusalem is Zion, Mount Zion. Salem is Jerusalem, but it's the ancient name. Why? Why is Asaph all of a sudden drawing out the ancient name, Salem, dating all the way back to Abraham's day? In fact, the first mention of Jerusalem in Scripture is in Genesis 14. And it's called Salem. Why? It's peace. Salem, peace. There's more. Keep your finger there quickly. Turn over to Hebrews chapter 7. Now, this is the part of the teaching. It's, it's been a little over an hour. And I'm about to put a fire hose in your mouth. Okay? Hang with me and then just... You can try to swallow this stuff later. Hebrews chapter 7, verse 1. Asaph in Psalm 76 says, Salem. It's in Salem there. God is known. His tabernacle, His temple, His sanctuary is there in Salem. In Abraham's day, there was a king who met Abraham by the name of Melchizedek. And Melchizedek was king of Salem. Watch this. Hebrews 7, verse 1, For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, who met Abraham as he was returning from the slaughter of the kings, and blessed him, to whom also Abraham apportioned a tenth part of all the spoils, that is, Abraham tithed, to Melchizedek. He was first of all, by the translation of his name, Melchizedek, the king of righteousness. That's what Melchizedek means. King of righteousness. And then also he was king of Salem. The literal place, Salem. So he's king of righteousness and he's king of peace. Hmm. Who's king of righteousness and king of peace? Don't say it. Just listen. Verse 3, without father, without mother, without genealogy, at least of a human nature, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but made like the Son of God, he remains a priest 
perpetually. Now observe how great this man was to whom Abraham the patriarch gave a tenth of the choicest spoils. It's weird. The guy comes out of nowhere and Abraham offers him a tithe. And by the way, if you read Genesis 14, Melchizedek brings out bread and wine and offers this. As Abraham is offering a spoil, Melchizedek gives bread and wine. Continue. And those indeed of the sons of Levi who received the priest's office have commandment in the law to collect a tenth from the people, that is, from their brethren, although these are descended from Abraham. But the one whose genealogy is not traced from them, that is Melchizedek, well, he collected a tenth from Abraham and blessed the one who had the promises. So he got a tenth, not because he was by law a Levitical priest. No, this is something different going on. Verse 7, But without dispute, the lesser is blessed by (laughs) the greater. The Hebrew writer takes hold of this mysterious king of righteousness, king of peace, or of Salem, and he draws a parallel to Jesus. Personally, I think Melchizedek was Jesus. I think in Genesis 14, Jesus showed up. King of righteousness, king of peace, bringing bread and wine, the symbols of communion. He comes there and he meets Abraham, and Abraham worships him, offering him a tenth of the spoils of the battle. Now, you may disagree, and that's fine. We'll find out. But I think it was Jesus himself. Why would you say this? Well, another interesting passage, John chapter 8, in verse 53. Jesus and the Pharisees, boy, they're just going at it. The Pharisees are on the attack and Jesus is calmly responding and He is just wasting them. The argument is being lost, hand over fist, and suddenly they look at Jesus and they say, Surely you're not greater than our father Abraham who died and the prophets died too. Who do you make yourself out to be? Or who do you think you are? And Jesus answered, If I glorify myself... My glory is nothing. It is my Father who glorifies me. Of whom you say, He is our God. You have not come to know Him. But I know Him. And if I say that I do not know Him, I would be a liar like you. But I do know Him and keep His word. Listen. Jesus then says, Your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day He saw it and was glad. Now the Jews said to him exactly what we would say. You're not yet 50 years old and you claim to have seen Abraham? And Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was born, I am. One of the most powerful statements in all Scripture where Jesus Himself undeniably says... I'm God. Because before Abraham was born, I am. And it wasn't because Jesus didn't know how to use proper Aramaic. (laughs) I am that I am, God said to Moses there at the bush, Exodus chapter 3. Before Abraham was born, I am. But you've got to ask the question, when Jesus says, Abraham rejoiced to see my day, he saw it and was glad. When? When did Abraham see Jesus' day? And the only place I can find is Genesis 14. King of righteousness, king of peace, meets with Abraham. And somehow Abraham recognizes 
There is something of the divine here because He offers worship. Psalm 76 points to the new reign of the King of Righteousness, the King of Peace, King of Salem, Jesus Christ. Verse 3 saying that He broke the flaming arrows, the shields and the sword and the weapons of war. What did Isaiah say? He will judge between the nations, Isaiah 2.4. He'll render decisions for many people. They'll hammer their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation will not lift up nation, uh, sword against nation and never again will they learn war. Verse 4, you are resplendent. More majestic than the mountains of prey. What are the mountains of prey? Jerusalem. Jerusalem, that, that city that has been preyed upon besieged over 30 times in history, destroyed and built on top of, and destroyed and built on top of, again and again and again, the mountains of prey. You're more resplendent. Who is? Jesus Messiah. Jesus is. Verse 7, You, even you, are to be feared. And who may stand in your presence when once you are angry? Oh, at the midpoint of the tribulation. People will realize what's going on. Revelation 6.16 says, They said to the mountains and to the rocks, Fall on us! Hide us from the presence of Him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb, for the day of their wrath has come. And who is able to stand? That's right. Who may stand in your presence? Verse 7. Down in verse 11, and I encourage you, man, pick apart these verses and look at them. But in verse 11, he says, Let all who are around him bring gifts to him who is to be feared. And we know that will happen in the millennial kingdom. Psalm 72, remember this, verse 10. Let the kings of Tarshish and of the islands bring presents. The kings of Sheba and Seba offer gifts. Let all kings bow down before him. All nations serve him. And this psalm, Asaph is now prophetically leaping beyond Assyria, leaping beyond the establishment of Hezekiah and his kingdom, and going straight prophetically to Jesus and his kingdom rule. Now listen, and this is critical, this is the whole point. Get this down. We are in the sanctuary psalms. We've entered in to the sanctuary. And in the same way that the sanctuary was absolutely central and essential to Jewish life, absolutely central the sanctuary is central and essential to the Christian life as well Jesus is our sanctuary Jesus is our sanctuary John 2.18 the Jews said to him what sign do you show us for your authority for doing the things that you're doing he had just driven out the money changers and cost them a lot of money there was no profit in that day either P-R-O-F-I-T. <laughs> Jesus said, destroy this temple and I will build it up in three days. And the Jews said, it took 46 years to build this temple and you'll raise it up in three days? And John astutely says he was speaking of the temple of his body. Jesus is our sanctuary. He is the one into whom we enter to worship. Hebrews 10.19 Therefore, brethren, since we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus, the blood sacrificed there on the altar as Jesus' blood sacrificed on the cross, and so then the priest would enter into the holy place by a new and living way which He inaugurated for us through the veil. The veil, what's the veil? Hebrew writer says, His flesh is the veil. 
The veil of the tabernacle and of the temple is picturesque of the flesh of Christ through which we must pass before we can get to the holy place. Hebrews 10.21 Since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let's draw near with a sincere heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Gang, the sanctuary, the temple itself was all a prelude to the one in whom we would worship. And as we consider the sanctuary psalms, that's where we're going. Into the heart of Jesus Himself. And this truth is so huge. It's not just an allegorical picture, my friends. Because when it's all said and done, Jesus is the temple, the sanctuary in New Jerusalem. Revelation 21-22 John says, I saw no temple in it for the Lord God the Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. And the city has no need of the sun or of the moon to shine on it for the glory of God has illumined it and its lamp is the Lamb. The lampstand in the temple portraying Jesus. The table of showbread portrayed Jesus. The, the altar of incense portrayed Jesus. The altar of sacrifice, the basin for washing, all portrayed Jesus. Going into the Ark of the Covenant portraying Jesus. The mercy seat is Jesus. The temple itself is a picture of Jesus who will be our sanctuary in New Jerusalem. Will I get to go to New Jerusalem? Hey, if you're in Christ Jesus, that's your zip code in the age to come. And the nations will walk by its light. And the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. Why? Because the nearness of God is my good. Hallelujah. Father, the nearness of God. I am so excited, Lord. It's as though we have just cracked open a new book. And I am excited for you to draw us, this fellowship, into the sanctuary. And I would ask, Lord, that we would even tonight begin in this process, that we, your, your little fellowship here in the barn, as with the larger fellowship of churches, Father, would we learn to enter into the Holy of Holies, the sanctuary, as we worship You and praise You, as we fulfill the very reason for our being, to worship You. In Jesus' name. Amen.